and welcome to Heineken Rugby Weekly with 42.ie. Every week we bring you behind the lines with expert analysis, tactical insights and engaging conversation around the international and club season. Our expert analysts will ask the hard questions and answer any you might have each Thursday. And we'll also have a feature interview with some of the biggest names and most interesting characters in the game. If you want more from that game, join Heineken Rugby Club, whose members enjoy exclusive rewards like match tickets and more. Visit HeinekenRugbyClub.com uh, for more on that. And remember to enjoy Heineken responsibly and visit DrinkAware.ie on how to do so. My own name is Gavin Casey. I'm joined in studio by the 42.ie's Murray Kinsella. Murray, how are you getting on, my friend? I'm very good, Gavin. Uh, unfortunately, Andy is not here with us this week, but I should mention that... I tried to brush over it, but yeah. it's a glaring absence. Before we go any further, we should mention that he predicted Ireland beating the All Blacks, and I got it wrong, so I just wanted to say that in case Andy's listening. Andy's, yeah. Andy's gut proved, proved <laughs> correct. Uh, absolutely amazing. We will be joined very shortly as well by Eddie O'Sullivan, so not a bad substitute for Andy. And your uh, big chat this week, Murray, is with Greg McWilliams, the USA attack coach. Yeah, really, really interesting kind of career path. He's chiseling out for himself. Um, was obviously with Ireland Women back in 2014, was coaching in St. Michael's, did Leinster 19s, and now he's gone off to the States and, and, and worked his way up to the to the national team job. He's doing a, a tack coach. So, yeah, really interesting chat with Greg a bit later on. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to hearing from Eddie as well. But just a couple of things to run through with yourself before we kick off in earnest. Uh, I suppose Augustine Pichot is the latest man to sell his soul in this dystopian post-truth era. Uh, he fell for a little bit of fake news on Twitter. Yeah, so he put out a tweet. I'm sure a lot of people have seen it. It kind of did the rounds on a couple other accounts last week. Uh, foreign-born players in the November test squads and a percentage of each squad, each national team squad, Ireland are on there at 26.1%. Um, now, this list is, I think, based on a YouTube account. I'm not sure exactly who, but it was pretty surprising that the vice chairman of World Rugby is kind of <laughs> basically stealing that stuff and putting was it on it his Twitter surprising? account. I think his role now almost is to kind of start these fires and really upset the status quo in rugby. I think that's why this is interesting. Yeah, he he has his numbers maybe wrong or a, bit, a little bit misleading. Guys like Luke McGrath, who was born in Canada, Jordy Murphy, who was born in Barcelona, are included in that foreign-born players list. They obviously are not born in Ireland, but they're definitely Irish players. So that's a little bit misleading. But I think this is just the way he operates. He even though even the white trainers he wears in his black suit, I'd say it annoys some of the guys in World Rugby, and I, I think it's kind of pointed the way he does that. You're this a fan is, of that, of course, aren't you? The uh, the white trainers <laughs> and black suit combo. I believe I've, you're on record as stating you you enjoy that I've, aspect. I've never his. done that, but uh, fair play to him if that's what he's into. I, I just think he's 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 come into World Rugby to kind of really shake it up and he's done that. He's got the three-year residency rule changed to five years. He clearly still has an issue with it and it's going to be interesting to see what his next move is in, in that regard. You see like Bundyaki, how important he's become for Ireland and um, you saw him after the match kind of leading that little chant at the end. The players clearly uh, feel he's bought into it. You could see how much it meant to him. So, it's a very divisive issue. I know a lot of people have different opinions, but I just thought it was interesting that the vice chairman of World Rugby is still coming out so strongly uh, with this. So I'd say it's not the, the end of this kind of thing. So maybe watch this space. Yeah, I wouldn't say I actually necessarily disagree with Augustine Pichot's fundamental viewpoint there, but I actually am getting a little bit bored of people coming in to shake up the status quo. It's <laughs> happening everywhere now. Uh, let's move on from that. Johnny Sexton, uh, Player of the Year at the Rugby Writers Awards on Wednesday night. Um, will he be World Player of the Year 
come Sunday night. Yeah, so the awards nights are in, in Monaco. Uh, for me, I think it's a very straightforward decision. Um, won a Grand Slam, serious success in Australia, has beaten the All Blacks. I think there was a conference call between the the committee who are deciding this uh, this week after the All Blacks game. And for me, it's a very straightforward decision. He's been superb in pretty much every game this year. I, I can't think of a bad one. The Argentina game was a dip for him and I think there was an element of him and Ireland probably focusing on the All Blacks I think it was quite apparent that the whole of November they were really concentrating on it Johnny's been pretty honest even since the game talking about that you know they marked that card very early in the year understandably Uh, there's been no other player who's controlled games the way he has If, if I was picking between himself and Bowden Barrett as my starting out half I'd pick Johnny I think Bowden Barrett is the most uh, gifted talented exciting attacking player in the world but I just don't think that he um, has as much control over the team as Johnny Sexton does. He does everything well, and it's not just kind of decision making, tactical kicking. Like defensively, he's so important. You saw that big moment where himself and Jacob Stockdale uh, smashed Ben Smith into touch in the big celebration. There's a really fiery side to him as well, and it's not just about that talent in attack, those amazing offloads and things like that. He sums up uh, a much wider range of skills for me. Um, and certainly this year, like Bowden Barrett's a brilliant rugby player and, and, and has deservedly won a couple of times, but I just can't see how Johnny Sexton doesn't win that award. Yeah, I think when it comes down to, uh, you've got 15 positions on the pitch, so many different attributes and skills, it should be decided upon, in my opinion, by who would you rather have in your team? Yeah, and in that sense, you'd probably say the shortlist is a little bit short-sighted. Maybe Tyke Furlong could have been in there. Even James Absolutely. Ryan has had an incredible year, consistency off the charts. Um, that's obviously an Irish kind of bias point of view, but there are lots of other forwards, uh, tight forwards, who probably do as much important work as those guys who end up scoring the match-winning points. But um, yeah, Johnny, I think on that shortlist, Johnny Sexton would have to be number one. Will Joe Schmidt stay or go after the World Cup? In, <laughs> one, in one word. I'm only joking. That's the big question. I, I don't know the answer. He said today in Carton House he's going to make his final, final decision on Sunday um, after the USA game and, and let everyone know early next week. So it'll be good to to put that to bed. Like it's kind of swung both ways. There's no insight from Joe. He's given nothing away on or off the record. Um, I think a couple of weeks ago, the feeling even among some of the players in that squad was that Joe's going a little bit more recently, there's been a feeling in New Zealand, okay, the All Blacks job is not actually going to open up here. Hansen may stay on, Ian Foster may be the favourite. So it's quite unclear whether he's going to walk straight into that or potentially in a couple of years that would open and that would maybe indicate Joe may be staying in Ireland. But I, I, I can't say with any certainty what's going to happen. I think the RFU have set themselves up and kind of almost pointed where they're going to go if Joe does leave. Uh, Philip Brown came out and said, they have Lancaster, they have Farrell, they have Easterby in the system. And all those guys have been really important parts of it. Easterby probably doesn't get as much credit as Andy Farrell. Obviously, the defence was incredible. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But that pack of forwards has become probably the best in the world now under Easterby. Uh, they had a bad day at the line-out, obviously, against Argentina. But their consistency across contact, the kind of latching skills, mauling, rocking. Uh, all those contact areas, they're just superb. Mm. Um, so he's a, he's definitely a candidate there as well. And we know all about the qualities of, of Lancaster and Farrell. So they're a good candidates, but I think pretty much everyone's hoping that Joe's answer on Monday or Tuesday is going to be, I'm going to stay. I suppose like, and I do hate these cross-pollination comparisons, but it, like the one that juts out of my mind where a manager or head coach announced that he was about to depart and like a season in advance of when he was actually departing was Alex Ferguson in 2001 
and United went from Premier League champions to finishing third for the first time in a long time. You know, the is there any danger of that happening if Schmidt was to announce that he was departing like well in advance of a World Cup where it's like the whole year becomes a bit of a swan song? Does it change the dynamic in any way? I don't think there'll be any danger of that at all. If anything, I think he would work even more ferociously hard. I don't know how he'll find extra hours in the day or how he'll function on one hour of sleep instead of three, but I don't see the players certainly losing any um, any kind of focus, any concentration, any application on the training ground. You, like Things are taking a step forward every single time Ireland are in camp now. You know, you're, talk, you're hearing guys talk about not being in the match day 23 and actually training hard against the, the match day 23 for that All Blacks game really hard uh, with pride. Like, you know, they're proud we played our part in this. So he's always adding these layers kind of culturally and tactically as well. They're they're changing all the time depending on who they're playing as well. So I really can't see that happening. I don't think it would be a, a big danger under Schmidt because he's just so relentless. Yeah, the 24th and 25th men weren't just there to hold bags like poor old Mr. Handy <laughs> Dunn last week. Eddie O'Sullivan joins us on the line now. Thanks a million, Eddie. How are you keeping over there? Oh, great. Uh, even better after last weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an excitable, excitable studio here as well. Uh, we will chat uh, in some detail about the All Blacks game, but just to look at the team that will line out against the USA, a lot of interesting, well, an interesting lineup, frankly. There's only Gary Ringrose uh, retains his spot in the team, so widespread changes. A uh, chance for John Cooney to put the hand up, Stuart McCloskey in for the first time since last year. What do you make of it? Um, it's Despite the number of changes to it, it's, there's, it's not too surprising. There's a couple of things there. I'm glad to see McCluskey getting a run because I thought for a while there, you know, he'd kind of fallen <clears throat> fairly far down the food chain and that if he didn't get a run this weekend, it could probably mean the kiss of death from in terms of the World Cup. You know what I mean? Um, there's that many changes. So I'm glad to see that uh, McCluskey's and I'm glad to see Sweetenham's getting a run. Um uh, I, I, the, probably the one that sticks out for me is Will Addison at 15. What, what does that mean for Jordan Larmer now? You know, um, like Larmer, we thought going to, to, to Chicago as the backup fullback, um, and uh, you know that didn't go that, that didn't go well for me afterwards. Like he had a great time in Chicago, but uh, didn't go well in Argentina. We thought maybe if Joe Schmidt sees him as the backup fullback, still he would have probably run this weekend to give him a chance to redeem himself. Um, but he's gone with Addison, and I think that's interesting, you know. And maybe he's he's. It, it, if I was Larmer, I'd be a little bit worried about that, you know, that it, he didn't get a run this weekend at fullback just to see could he kind of pick up where he left off in, in Italy um, in the Italy game and maybe fix some of the things that went awry from against Argentina. But it doesn't seem that's the the way it's going from, and I, that's a concern, I'd say. Um, so that's probably the one that jumps out at me the most. Yeah, Murray, it's an interesting call. It, it is an exciting uh, prospect to see Addison, a fullback, obviously did a very good job at 13. But for Larmer, I suppose, we have looked at him for a long time as this incredible talent, which he is, but we're kind of waiting for him to explode onto the international scene. And I suppose a lot of us have perceived him to be the heir to Rob Carney's throne at 15, if you like. Maybe it's not quite the case, or at least mightn't be the case for another couple of years. Yeah, I, I certainly think he is going to be part of that squad uh, and I think he's established himself there but it was interesting that he went back to Leinster um, we asked Richie Murphy during the week was there an injury there he said he was a little bit beaten up um, without indicating injury I, I wouldn't be surprised if there is something there um, 
but yeah, it is. I guess it is a massive opportunity for Addison. Like the thing with him, we, I think we've mentioned before, he is 26. He has a lot of experience. He's not like he's coming in as a fresh youngster. Um, obviously, he has to learn a lot about how Ireland function, but he's he's really experienced. Over 100 games for sale has club captained them as well. So um, it's almost like he was that next one in the depth chart anyway. But he's just suddenly appeared on the radar. So I don't think it's a, a big step for him to adapt into Ireland's um, systems and and Joe Schmidt's demands. And I think you've seen him do that really well. I think he's been a really good addition. Um, so how he performs is is going to be really interesting. Also, the back row as well is really interesting for me. Reese Rodick captains it. Jordy Murphy at seven and Conan at eight. Potentially, you could be looking at those three guys actually battling it out for one of those last back row spots mm-hmm. in the World Cup squad. And that's the interesting thing about this game. Like, there's obviously not going to be as the, the, quite the excitement on the outside as there was for the All Blacks game. But for these players, you know, you're looking ahead and all you have is the Six Nations and then the warm-up games for the World Cup. This could be your last very last chance uh, Eddie kind of mentioned there with McCluskey as well who's been brilliant up in Ulster um, and he knows Chris Farrell's going to be coming back into the picture moving forward to Six Nations as well so yeah it's a, it's a huge day for, for those guys Are there any players that stand out as being on the periphery of the international squad now say Rory Scannell being one where you could kind of consider them unlucky not to be involved in this at the moment like I mean because if you look at the bench for example the players are, most of them are a little bit more established. Some of them were involved at the weekend. Like, it's not a completely fresh squad, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but it was never going to be in, in November. Like, he's, what did he cap, 35 players before this November test in that kind of World Cup cycle. He'd done a lot of his kind of finding out about players. He'd he'd found the depth chart in a lot of positions and is probably pretty happy with where that is now. Even the scrum half situation has been really positive from this month. Obviously, missing Conor Murray was a big thing and we talked about it a lot and maybe they would have won even more comfortably if he'd been there against the All Blacks but that has been a massive growth area Kieran Marmion's had two big starts Luke McGrath's made a good impact off the bench in those two games and now John Cooney deservedly having been really good at Ulster since taking that chance and going up from Connacht uh, he gets his opportunity so there's been positives in that regard I don't think it was ever really going to be about experimenting obviously Sammy Arnold now is going to get a debut off the bench which is another uh, option in the the midfield which looks really strong so I think the month overall uh, considering the fact that they've one more game to go and, and will hopefully get a good performance. But I think it's been a really good month for the squad overall as well. Yeah, Eddie, interested to get your interpretation of the hooker situation. Like, I suppose, obviously, Rory Best going into World Cup here, his position is pretty much copper-fastened. And if you're going to have an impact sub, it will always be Sean Cronin. But Niall Scannell, in a way, it could be nearly perceived a second choice at this point, I think, even though he ha- he wasn't in the squad for the All Blacks game. Like, if something was to happen to Best, I reckon Scandal would have a better chance of starting in a World Cup than Sean Cronin. Yeah, that's a reasonable suggestion because Scandal has, has always delivered when he's been selected. Um, plus the fact that he's very solid at the lineup. Like, definitely Cronin brings that X factor around the field, uh, particularly off the bench with like 20 or 25 minutes to go when the opposition are getting a wee bit tired and he's got such acceleration off the mark. But his his um his line-up throwing is probably his accolades heel a bit, you know. He needs a very, very solid line-up in front of him. And, um, you know, that's that's something if you're starting a game, you'd want to start the game. Now, if, of course, if Devin Toner was starting in that game um, for Ireland, I think, you know, that makes an awful difference to Ireland or Peter O'Mahony. So maybe Cronin still gets... Gets the, the the edge there, but Scannell certainly is going to make a case. And you know, listen to him talking during the week. He was put in front of the media like he, he knows this is his chance because I think there's there's three hookers going to the World Cup, 
and I think it's best Cronin and one other. So Scanner with the at the moment should focus on seeing off Rob Herring. That'd be his biggest concern, you know. Mm. And this is a fantastic chance for him to start the game, probably play a good hour and have a massive impact over that hour and leave a thought in Josh Smith's mind, like, you know, if you're looking for your next man up, I'm your next man up. But because they mightn't get they might not the Murray is right, these guys might not get much exposure in the Six Nations, you know. Um the Six Nations is the Six Nations, and we're going to have to try and contain our momentum. Keep we don't have to get any more momentum than we have. We're like number two in the world, and and banging on the door for number one. But we don't want to lose momentum, and we have to be careful. That Six Nations is, is can be like fraught with with booby traps for us. Um, so there isn't much room for for shuffling the deck. I think unless he's really sure. So someone like Scan was looking at that one. He mightn't get game time during the Six Nations, and then by the time you rock up for the um, you know, the warm-up games to the World Cup, it's pretty much done and dusted. You're, like, you're, you're out at that stage, like barren injury. So it's a big one for Scanlon for sure. And listen to him talking during the week, he knows it without any doubt. And I think he's quite relieved that he's getting the start ahead of Rob Herring uh, because it gives him a chance to set out his stall in a big way. So like he won't leave that in the tank for the first hour. He can be guaranteed for, of that, you know. Um, plus, I think the... the uh, the front row itself is is he's gone down the depth chart on that now you know like he's you're looking at guys like um, David Kilcoyne, Finley Bealham getting a look in, uh, John Ryan. Um, I mean they're guys who have kind of been outside the top four props you know, so they again have to make an impact because it's probably their last, def- almost certainly their last chance to to for for to leave a lasting impression in Josh Smith's mind that when they last put on a green short. So there's a lot of that stuff going on. Then the back row, I mean, if you try to pick the World Cup back row at the moment, your head will explode. Because, <laughs> you know, let's assume when we get let's assume we, we get um the guys back and like like Son O'Brien comes back um and and uh, Dan Levy comes back from their injuries. Van der Flair, Jordy Murphy, Reese Ruddock, Jack Conan, like it's just world class, like. And then there's fellas like Tommy O'Donnell is going to want to stay in that, you know. Then there's the young guys like Keelan Doris and Leinster who must seem the Irish team is a million miles away, but you never know. So that that whole back row thing is like it's an embarrassment of riches. So th- that's one of the things that served us really well, actually. I think for the whole year, um, if you look at this, the the whole calendar season from like this, the Grand Slam through to the the um the the, the Test series in, in Australia. And now the like looks like it's certainly going to be the perfect autumn. Um, that when guys get a chance, there's so much competition for places that you just cannot screw it up. Like, and the one thing guys are at the moment is whatever you do, don't play yourself out of contention for the World Cup. If you go out and have a, a holder of a game, that could be it for you. So the pressure, even when you come off the bench for 20 minutes, the pressure when you get a, a start in one of these games is just insane like you just got to make sure you deliver every ounce of energy because there's so many guys open for your short it used to be the way the all blacks were there was a time when the all blacks played if you got dropped in the all blacks it was your last cap you never got back again because the guy who took your short was never giving it back and there's famous stories about that but ireland that sort of depth though that there's there's a serious competition practically in every position uh bar obviously nine and ten were the two best in the world um and then i think rob carney is still our best but that's the one link in the chain that he doesn't know yet who's his next man up there and that's probably the one that keeps him awake most at night <laughs> Eddie you'd have a, a keener eye on them than most and before we hear from Craig uh, McWilliams I'd be interested in your opinion on this USA team what are they all about and, and how do they stack up compared to some of the American teams that we've seen visiting these shores in the past and of course that we've played over there as well I think they're one of the best American teams around for the last few years 
I think if, uh, one of the problems really was uh, when I was in America is that we had like, I think was he at the time, we had like three players playing overseas that were playing at a decent level. You had uh, Chris Wiles, Todd Clever and Tucker and Gwenya. We had another couple of lads playing that might have been like in second or third division in France, you know. But by and large, the vast majority of your squad came from uh, effectively amateur players in the US. And then they had the, you had the guys who, like was important, so we got guys out of the sevens program who weren't professionals, but they were practically full-time as sevens. And so there was a, a good fist to those guys made your squad. I think the moment uh, America has got some really good depth on the basis that a lot of guys are playing overseas that weren't playing over before, um, the sevens program has got even stronger and they're more, more, much more competitive. So it's it's actually a better squad of players, and there's more depth in the squad. And I think that makes they're, they're a better team. If you look at their world ranking now, they've had a really good run of games. Um, they've beaten Scotland, they've beaten Samoa, which is a hell of an achievement for a team like America. They still have a, a, they still have a group of amateur players. And to be fair, people say, oh, we've got a professional league. I, I actually don't think the professional league has yet contributed much to that except yeah guys are probably getting a bit of better quality of rugby for six or eight games a year but where the American leagues at the moment probably isn't really at the professional level it's probably more like good All-Ireland League standard here you know mm. so I, I don't I think it's just the fact there's more guys playing and playing, playing their trade overseas in full-time professional environments and um, I think it's just a better team it's it's just over the again they're taking us like they're taking incremental steps forward in America you know, every World Cup, this needs to be a little bit better. Um, but still, having said all that, then, when you boil it down, like, they shouldn't be in the same ballpark as this Irish team, like, you know, um, at the end of the day. So they're, they'll go into that game pretty stressed that if they get it wrong, they'll get a real pounding. And that means they'll bring a lot of energy. So the first 20 minutes of this game could be fairly physical as they're going to throw everything with the kitchen sink in Ireland because they know if Ireland get a, a big start, like, they weren't going to, they aren't going to hold back. And they know all these Irish guys are playing to make an impression, you know, it's not like we're wrapping up the end of the season and it's a bit of a jolly. Everyone with a green shirt on Saturday is trying to make a statement, so they know that as well. So I think they're they're worried that they could get opened up, so they'll play with a lot of energy. But I think over the 80 minutes, we should have them put away pretty early doors, you know. Very interesting. Well, let's hear from one of the men behind that uh, recent improvement in America's fortunes. Murray Kinsler caught up with Greg McWilliams. Yes, a lot of people who will be listening, kind of maybe last New Year's Ireland women assistant coach, St. Michael's, um, can maybe give us a bit of background on how you decided, right, this Yale opportunity is the right one for me. I think I'd been in Michael's as a, a student and then as a teacher um, for 13 years and I'd coached uh, pretty much most levels and Michael's up to the SET level. Um, and I was very lucky to to do a bit of work with Leinster under 19s and with the Irish women's side. And I just felt if I was going to stay there for even a year or two more, I'd end up retiring there as a 65 year old and I, I would have lived in a bubble. Um, so I was really keen to explore other opportunities as long as it was the right one. And when Yale came about, obviously education was a pretty big part of my, uh, I suppose, my development as a coach. To have the opportunity of go to somewhere like Yale and to... Um, be around very smart people and um, you know just universities such history and tradition that was a, a pretty special thing for me so I made the decision to go over there in 2014 uh, with my wife Sarah and uh, here I am now yeah as USA uh, assistant coach What has the job been like over there I guess because people probably don't have a great understanding of how the system works over there what have you actually kind of done over the last uh, four years? 
I mean, I got a shock. I'll be honest with you. You know, three weeks into uh, the job, I remember ringing up my missus and like, oh, what are you doing here? <laughs> like, honestly, it was, it was, I was at a pretty low point um, because I felt I'd made the wrong decision. You know, okay. you got to remember that you sometimes have kids who've, who've never even seen a game of rugby before. They're coming out going, hey, coach. Yeah. You know, so um, very early on, you realize that those things, things that you take for granted as a coach in somewhere like Michael's or, you know, you know, Leinster underage players, um, you realize just how important it is to actually go back to the very, very basics of the game. And it gave me the opportunity to pretty much go back and just dissect the game down and pretty much most components. So it actually worked out being a really important part of my journey. Because I think, you know, as a coach, the key thing for me was to find my own route to, to who I hope to eventually be as a coach. And I think, um, Yale was a big part of that. And, you know, there's a board at Yale, a Yale rugby board that's full of uh, very successful businessmen um, who have guided me massively in my off-field uh, work around how you build uh, performance indicators, your best practice, uh, your communication skills, um, how you look at measurables and how you actually dissect that and, and use it to your advantage. I mean, some of the um, emails you get through, you need to take out the old thesaurus and <laughs> realize what does this word mean? Yeah. And uh, it's helped me little things, you, you, things you take for granted. I was never a great speller. I'm sure... I'm sure students will tell you, Michael, at the time, my spelling wasn't great, but you can send an email to an alum without checking it five, six, seven, eight, nine times, you know, yeah. and how you're formulating a sentence and how you're conducting an email. So I need to get better at that um, to become uh, a better coach and a better all-around uh, person, I suppose. So yeah. It sounds like the ideal kind of testing ground for a lot of what you're doing now. I was interested, though, how your involvement with Yale, uh, I guess, progressed to the point now that you're working with the USA. How did that relationship I, I remember I got a call from Alex Magleby, um, who was a Dartmouth coach, and he was also, you know, high performance director in USA. And I, I'd done a, I'd done a coaching clinic up there with, um, you know, with perspective, perspective, um, Ivy League students. And Alex was there, and maybe he saw something. He was like, "Look, let's give this guy a shot." So I got working with the men's collegiate All Americans with Gavin Hickey, another Irish guy, terrific coach, is doing well over in the USA. And I had the opportunity to coach, and again, you know, he would have overseen my development over, I suppose, a two-year period. And then out of the blue, last year, I got a call from uh, Dave Hodges, who's the general manager of USA, and he asked me to go on the November tour with Dave Hewitt, who came on board as their intern coach. So I went there with uh, the remit of looking after the attack in the backs. And then Gary Gold came in and um, I didn't think I was going to stay on. Um, and then Gary got in touch and he shared what his vision was. And he's he's very, very impressive, I must say. He really is. Mm. He's an impressive man. Um, so I, was, I jumped at the opportunity and we went through an A or C together, which is the equivalent of the Six Nations Championship, where we play against five nations in South and North America. And then obviously we had a, a summer series where we played Scotland and we were pretty successful against them. And we played Russia and Canada. And then we go into November now, we're at the back end of a of a month tour. So um, kind of, a, I suppose one thing led to another where yeah. you have somebody who's putting their faith in, in me and my job is to work as hard as I can to repay them for giving me this incredible opportunity. Sometimes I'm like, are you sure you got the right Greg McWilliams? <laughs> you know, I mean, um, 
I know a lot of uh, young coaches, the likes of Emmett McMahon at St. Michael's and Andrew Ski and obviously St. Michael's and Peter Burke. You know, these guys are terrific coaches and it's it's just about getting an opportunity. I was very lucky I got an opportunity and here I am still milking it. You know, the bluff <laughs> continues, but... Uh, Being very modest. Yeah. He, he, you know, Gary's put obviously a lot of faith in you and you're kind of leading that attack. Is there certain philosophies that you've had in that aspect of the game or have you had to adapt to what Gary wants or, or how does that work? Great question. I think a key thing to a coach is first you got to know your player group and you got to design a, a plan in defence and attack that suits those players. So you got to look at where the strengths are and you obviously you want to try and do what they're best at most often. So the way that you'd coach uh, group to group can vary. And I think my job as an assistant coach to Gary is to preach the word of Gary Gold. You know, he's the head coach. He's a terrific vision. But, you know, when I plan the attack, I'm not planning it on my own. I plan it with, you know, the forwards coach. I plan it with our S&C coach. Like our video analyst has a massive role with me. I mean, he's very, very impressive. Jimmy Harrison, a young fella, and he provides so much information to me to improve my attack. And then Gary will have the last say. So, for example, if I'm presenting to players, I wouldn't do anything unless I, you know, talk through it with Gary and he'll look at it and he'll make his um, suggestions and we'll we'll hash it out. We'll look at video footage. That process can last a long time pre-tour. And then it's about being a car salesman. And you have to get the attack group around. You say, look, here's my plan. And I want you guys to take this, digest with it, and come back to me with ways you think you can improve it. And then, you know, it's important that they have um, they have a big understanding of what our uh, outlook is and how we want to play. And then they need to add to it and they need to own it. Because, you know, I'm going to be this, you know, 40-year-old man up in the stand looking down from a box. I'm not going to have very big impact on Saturday. So the players need to own it. So when things go right or when things go wrong, they understand why. And they're able to make pressurized situations uh, easier. Um, and, you know, that's the key thing for us as a group to play the likes of an Irish side. You know, the the like, it's so impressive. Yeah. It's so impressive. And we'll learn from it. I mean, the result, it sounds very cliche, but the result on Saturday is... Um, I won't say irrelevant, of course it's important, but we need to just look at our process and see what areas worked, what areas didn't work, what areas you need to focus on, what do we bin and never use again, and you know what area can we maybe explore and look to improve on. So yeah. this is massively uh, valuable for this group of players, but it's also uh, incredibly rewarding for them. They work hard, and just to be in the stage to play against an Irish team is is terrific. Yeah. Oh, I'll come back to the game itself. I wanted to touch on the, you, you'd mentioned a few of the guys you'd, the brains you'd picked and, and that. Um, obviously, Scott Robertson was a guy you had over recently enough mm. over in Yale. How did that, was a fortnight, I think, was it? You had yeah. Over? How did that go? Well, very lucky to, to coach them last year uh, with the Barbarians. Um, and I came into that environment not knowing what to expect. And Robbie you know, threw me in the deep end, which was a big learning curve for me. Made me feel so welcome. The players were terrific. Um, I was like this geek in the corner and I'd be picking their brains and asking them questions. I'm sure they're fed up with me by the end of the week. But uh, <laughs> Scott was somebody who I looked at the way he coached and it just hit me straight away. I was like, this guy has his own way of coaching. Um, it was very much him as a person, but he was so detailed in his delivery. His delivery was sharp, you know, really sharp. So we stayed in touch and he managed to come over to America for two weeks at the start of September. And actually, coincidentally, Gary was in um, America at the same time. So the three of us got together and we talked shop and then uh, Scott came back to Yale with me and he stayed for about 10 days. And, um, you know, we talked an awful lot of rugby. and We looked a lot at, 
you know how I was approaching uh, the game and always challenging you know and I learned a lot from him um, about how I delivered better um, I had a tendency of you know parroting the odd time and saying the same thing you know twice maybe three times and they have a saying in Canterbury that you just say it once Mm. So you're trying to turn a 20-minute meeting into a five-minute debrief nearly as opposed to you know keeping the players for too long, waffling on and talking bluff. So um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, what an, what an interesting fella. Great, great fun. And uh, he was so valuable to our players. But also he was valuable with our varsity sports. You know, he did a lot of work with our football program, a lot of work with our basketball coaches, our lacrosse coaches. And that was a big thing for me. I think Yale's... Uh, point of difference is it's an educational institution one of the best in the world so how can we develop uh, a process in rugby that other people can look at and go do you know what that's pretty interesting and he's helped uh, design that for us and that's definitely something that we're looking to continuously develop at Yale is our process around uh, around the environment and, and making it as enjoyable for the players over a four year period yeah brilliant it seems to be lots of great work going on uh, at the kind of grassroots level of American rugby, obviously you're focused on here and now and a World Cup maybe next year. But how? What's your sense of how the game is growing in, in the US and how exciting is it that that seems to be finally pushing pushing forward? I think the key thing to uh, you know the US is to get a rugby ball in a in, in a kid's hand who's like six seven years of age and they're able to, you know, I I was very fortunate that my older brothers played and I remember being in the dark. Um, you're not able to see the ball and you're tackling each other in the back garden <laughs> and you're trying to like get away from the trees so you don't hurt yourself and you learn yourself a coach telling you what space is like and how you can use your body to manipulate space I know it sounds a bit um, contrived but you, yeah. uh, if you have the ability to do that at a young age it's amazing then when you have somebody who can just kind of guide you on a, on a bit of a path about how you can use your body and how you can understand the importance of space and things like your timing to the gain line um, you know how to play flat how to play deep why you play flat and why you play deep um, so I think the more you can get young kids in America playing the game from an early age the greater a journey they can go on and um, you're hoping that it's a journey that's full of enjoyment and the values of rugby are there and USA is needs to be USA it doesn't need to be Ireland it doesn't need to be the All Blacks doesn't need to be England. It needs to find its own identity. And that's something that I'm really impressed about with Gary because what he's doing for USA Rugby, you're going to see long after Gary's gone. And, um, you know, even just to be a small part of that with Gary has been something that I'm gonna, I know I'm going to look back on and be really proud of. Mm. Like, obviously, results at the top level of the game do inspire younger people as well. What would be a success for you guys after this game at the weekend to look back and go, yeah, you, you mentioned the result is obviously secondary to what you want to do on the pitch. What are the things that you want to see from your players well you know Ireland it's incredible to think that they can go into an 80 minute game of rugby and at times you know go between 8 and 12 2 minute blocks of play mm. I mean it's phenomenal so if you think from a conditioning point of view a tactical point of view when you're tired and fatigued and you've got pressurised defences how you're able to cope in that environment as a rugby player I think we're going to learn a lot about our players. I think they'll learn a lot about themselves. And it's about using that information to help guide these players into um, into a position where they're going to get to a World Cup and be competitive. Um, if we can be competitive this week, that's great. The result is secondary to, to our process. And we have a way that we're designing our attack and our defense and our starter plays and our counter-attack policy and our kicking policy, I mean, things we're doing right, things we're doing wrong, and uh, we'll just have a look at our process after the game. And, 
you know, decipher what is going to be uh, good for us moving forward. Can we play and compete against Ireland from week to week? I'd love to say we could at some point, but at the moment it's a case of just trying to get through this week and see what we can learn going into what's going to be a pretty challenging 2019. Interesting stuff from Mr. Mac Williams. Good story, that. Now, I've got a question for both of you. I'll start with yourself, Eddie, if you don't mind. Are, well, you actually alluded to it. You said we're the second best team in the world. We're knocking on the door as being the best team in the world. So Ireland right now are not the best team in the world, is what you're saying? Well, it's hard to say that we are the best team in the world. I mean, we beat New Zealand last week, but one swallow doesn't make a summer. You know, you feel realistic about it. They're over, over their rankings over the last... Uh, you know, always have been the number one team in the world. That doesn't mean, though, that if we played them again next Saturday, we wouldn't beat them again, you know. Over 80 minutes, we're right in the ballpark. Um, there was times when we played New Zealand that we, like, had to play out of our skins and they had to play poorly to give us any chance of beating them. We're at a point now where we just play well and they are a little bit off, we get them. Like, they have to play well to beat us. They didn't have to play well to beat us before. They've often not played well and got the other side of us. So, I think you know, I don't even set up on Monday and say we are the best team in the world. I think that's there's other there's too many variables there to say that as well. Like they're at the end of a season, they're pretty beaten up, they're tired. Our players are rested and fresh. We're the early part of a season. Some guys have have you know played very little rugby really, except at the top end when they needed to. So all that's part of a factor. But the real test is at the World Cup. It's a level playing field. Everybody arrives there at the same time, and it's a tournament. But I think we're there or thereabouts. I mean, you could argue the toss, but you could be right and you could be wrong about it. But I, I, I still think that New Zealand have learned a lot from this tour, um, particularly against us. And that's probably not a good thing for us um, or anybody <laughs> else for that matter. You know. Yeah, that's a fair point. Murray, I think this uh, notion of being the best team in the world is a nice thing for fans because any Irish person wants to be supporting a national team that is the best <laughs> yeah. at something. But... For the players, it was always going to be just more important to know that we can put this team away and they've done so now twice in three years. Like, I don't, like, it's not something that the players are thinking about clearly that, oh, we're the best in the world or we're the second best. Uh, oh. I don't think they'll dwell on it, but I think they are motivated by it. Jack Conan mentioned it again this week. He said at the start of this year, before the Six Nations, we sat down and talked about how we could become the best team in the world. I, th- I think it is a clear goal. I think they are increasingly thinking of themselves as we can take on and beat New Zealand anytime they play them now there's there's not that lack of confidence there anymore I think Eddie's completely right though I think well for me the All Blacks are still the best team in the world based on what they've done over the last couple of years and based on that consistency of performance I think in a short term period it would, it would have been brilliant to see a three test series between the two sides because right now I think the question is definitely valid and open and moving forward I think it makes it all the more fun over the next year like the All Blacks go away from this tour Eddie mentions they've learned loads of things. Having come up against England and Ireland's defensive systems, which are so aggressive, and I would say, yeah, I would say they're probably ahead of what the Southern Hemisphere teams are doing in terms of that aggression, in terms of closing down that decision-making time for a guy like Bowden Barrett, who, if you give decision-making time, will invariably make the right one. Um, I think they'll have learned from that. I thought their performance last weekend was 
just weird. I thought it was a weird performance from them in some in terms of some of the the tactics in terms of how they actually attacked Ireland I thought it was slightly uncharacteristic Steve Hansen on Sunday morning after the game was talking about we've tried to change the way we play and now we're almost stuck between the old and the new and you saw them being very direct like one of the moments that stands out for me is Ireland's scrum was under pressure Scott Barrett turns over CJ Stander off the side of it and Ardi Savea comes back at Ireland on a turnover situation with a full backline outside him um, Ireland are coming forward at pace to try and close down that space but he still doesn't pass the ball normally you see them shift straight away to the edge to the space instead he just thunders forwards and, and, and carries at them I thought they missed a lot of opportunities to go probably out to the, the edge of, the, of their attacking kind of shape and, and they just didn't really seem to be pursuing that so I would say there was a lot more um, I suppose tactical experimentation from them not to diminish Ireland's win but I think they were trying to get more than a win out of that game against Ireland I think they were trying to learn a bit more about their team um, and different ways they can set up to to take teams apart um, yeah I just thought it was a strange performance from them and it is kind of worrying almost that they're going to be the ones that learn most from it yeah the um, onus is on them now to improve yeah so so long term I, I, I think the question is really interesting are Ireland the best team in the world right now with a with a three test series I think they probably would have beaten the All Blacks as Eddie says at this time of season um, but going forward into the World Cup there's a lot of question marks there for them uh, Bowden Barrett is he their 10 or is he their 15 is it him and Damian McKenzie as dual playmakers or does Ben Smith go back in at 15 who's their best centre combination I don't think they really know uh, Sam Kane was really badly missed I thought in just in contact he just hammers people in the tackle um, and while Ardi Savea is a really exciting player and has a lot of dynamism I don't think he's of that same calibre so they've got a lot of questions to answer and I, I think Hansel would probably welcome that to an extent um, but it's just fascinating that Ireland have asked so many questions of them um, and shown that mentally it's it's not a hurdle for them anymore to beat the All Blacks Yeah Eddie much was made of New Zealand's transition from defence to attack but do they strike you as a team in transition at the moment? Uh, I was I probably was a little bit surprised to hear Steve Hansen say that I, I didn't see anything majorly different. I think they 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 were confident that they could mix. Um, what they do is they they allow a lot of latitude to their players to make decisions in attack and defence. Defence is another problem. I, don't, I think they have an issue with defence actually, but in attack. And I, I thought they probably felt going into the game that they could, if Ireland spread out, they could go through them, and if Ireland got too condensed as we can, they go around us. But Ireland actually got their defence very balanced in the sense they got the numbers right on the short side, they got the numbers right on the open side, they got the spacing right. So there was really a wall of yours in front of them. And then the, the, the double down was that we won collisions. So we were coming off the line like, like mad dogs in a meat house at every ruck practically. You know, There was times when they got softer game lines, but they were kind of suffocated beyond the point where they, they, they haven't been suffocated for a long time. And I think that was snapped our head back. And and I think in Hansen when he said we're in transition, I thought he was a, he was talking about more referring to the point of being like we're going, we've got to look more to transition before next year. Um, and I, I think they have to rethink because the way they should have come at us when they when they learned early doors were, were smothering them, they they still continued to try and truck it up without really much of an option to do anything else. Only truck it up. And then when they went around the corner, it was obvious they went around the corner and we were able to shut that down. They needed to come at us with a little more, um, I suppose, a little, a little more sleight of hand and, and spread us out and go through us a bit. And if they could have done that, they might have got us. And still in all, there was a, three or four times, they, they had a purple patch between, I think, this 64th minute and the 72nd minute where they had four or five really good chances and none of them stuck. Um, but that said, like, 
I agree with Murray that they ha- this is a, a New Zealand team that's very far from settled. It's never going to be as good as the team that won the last World Cup. That's taken as granted by even New Zealanders. Uh, they haven't been able to replace the guys they had in the last World Cup, which is understandable. You know, the midfield of Conrad Smith, Man Anu, and and um, and Dan Carter. Like that, they they're they. Okay, Barrett is different animal, but yeah, he's he's as good as Carter and his own. But they don't have their midfield figured out. Like they 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 literally have a plethora of guys who play in the midfield. They don't know who's full back. Like Ben Smith's been the guy, or Jordy Barrett, you know, McKenzie. They're not sure there. They need to rebalance their back row. I mean, they miss Sam Kane, but Sam Kane is never going to be as good as um as Richie McCaw, you know. So like they have a lot of stuff to figure out. And then again, we saw uh, those their, their loose head uh, Tuino Kuafe. He got eaten alive, you know, on on Saturday. Like they hmm. don't have a backup loose head. So they like it's. Apart from their, the way they play, I, I think Steve Hansen has a lot of other things to iron out. Now, they'd love to have gone home with a win and still know the problems, but it turns out they went home and lost, so the problems are even sticking out more for them. But, yeah, this is a New Zealand team that's, if you believe uh, the coach, they're in transition how they play, and they're in transition picking their squad, which a lot of teams are in the same place as them, but New Zealand are rarely in this place a year old from the World Cup. That's the interesting thing for them. And they're vulnerable and they know it. And there'll be a lot of uh, naval gazing going on back in the the islands when they when they get back, you know, because they know World Cups that are in their history that you know one slip and it's all over. And and they they thought they'd got past that in the last two World Cups, but this one could be a lot trickier than the last one for sure. Yeah, I suppose it's a testament to the quality of the team and what they've achieved that like we're listing all of these problems, and yet they weren't a million miles away at all at the weekend, you know. So. Uh, It'll be an interesting one with the the onus on New Zealand to improve and and almost play catch up in a way to see what they can do over the next uh, 12 months or so. But we've explored there, well, both of you have explored how they fell short in attack. But let's look at it from Ireland's defensive perspective. Uh, Murray, I'll start with yourself. Like, how did Ireland actually prevent New Zealand from scoring a try? becoming the first Northern Hemisphere team since 1995, I believe, in doing so. Yeah, well, we've touched on some things there. Closing down the decision-making time, Ireland under Andy Farrell have uh, kind of moved to having a lot of bodies in the line, and that was the case. You saw at times it was 14 up there and Rob Kearney controlling the backfield on his own. Like, we should first mention, as you say, they came very close to her, and Joe Schmidt mentioned it pretty much at the start of his press conference afterwards. They had, like, a, a multiple really good try-scoring chances that generally they would have taken. Even that lovely move they had throw over the tail of the line out, Rico Ioanni goes through the seam and just throws a loose offload. It was really good defensive work from, from Keith Earls and Kieran Marmion, in fairness. Bowden Barrett kind of breaking to within a couple of metres of Ireland's line, throws a bit of a loose offload again. That's Rob Kearney scrambling really well to get into that offloading channel. Um, there was the saves, from the one from Peter O'Mahony, obviously, which stood out really well. Uh, it was a, was a big moment in the game. He did really well to get back there and, and grab the ball in front of Ben Smith. There was another one in the first half, actually. It probably wasn't as apparent at the time. Um, New Zealand were attacking out to the left edge. They had, uh, Carney came up to kind of close the door, on, on the close the gate on the edge of the defence and suddenly the space kind of beckoned in behind. Um, it was three on three on the outside edge for, for Ireland, but Barrett tries to grubber through that one um, and Rico Ioanni was taking off. I think he would have beat uh, Carney for for pace. Carney was turning, but Devon Toner just gets his foot to the ball and, and kind of Ringrose scoops it up. That was a, a poss- a quite a probable try, I'd say, if the ball goes through there. There was loads of little moments like that, but... 
because of the pressure um, on the decision makers, and, and Ireland did it really intelligently. You saw Ringrose um, leading it a lot, shooting from that second or, or second centre channel uh, and getting up outside the decision maker who was in behind that pod of forwards that New Zealand always used, that three-man pod. Yeah, the prime example was in the first half where Ringrose shoots up, Barrett kind of turns his head um, and realises Ringrose put him under pressure, knocks on the ball. Uh, you saw a lot of that and you saw them going after uh, Brody Retallick as well like New Zealand's structure in attack is quite simple we mentioned it they play that kind of three pot, three man pod off the off the rook and, and then they have an option to carry to tip on or to go out the back door often Retallick probably felt like he couldn't even make that decision because Ireland were shooting so aggressively uh, onto the decision maker so they'd done their homework really well you could see how well Andy Farrell prepared them um, and it is like it is a basic thing at the end of the day but it's surprising that more teams haven't put New Zealand under that kind of pressure. Like Don Lennon mentioned it during the, the commentary uh, on RT. He said, you know, these guys look like normal players when they're put under pressure. Um, and Ireland just applied it so thoroughly. Like we talked about that concentration level across 80 minutes. They applied that so thoroughly um, and made all the decisions really well. Even Kieran Marmion at times wasn't in the line. Sometimes he did sweep in behind, which maybe doesn't always happen in Ireland. Um, and he was always there when that kick went in. They just read that play um, really intelligently on an individual level. And then when someone did shoot, they were always backed up. You know, if Ringrose went, then Earls went with him as well from the outside edge, reacted really well. And and you saw that um, really important cohesion that, that Ireland have built in, in their defensive system. So yeah, it was an outstanding defensive display while at the same time the All Blacks could have scored a couple of tries. Yeah, Eddie, it's the fine margins, really, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're, Murray alluded to them there. They could have gone in for a couple. We just uh, yeah. got the job done in the end. Well, there you're like, you know, okay, stand back from it. and This is not taken out away from the victory because we played so well. But this New Zealand team, we, we suffocated them by and large. And, and Murray is right, we defended really, really well. Um, and I think that the genesis of our defence was the fact that we were winning collisions as well. And we're very smart when we competed at Rooks and we didn't compete. We got numbers and we got off the line. And, and they, they really hadn't been run that sort of pressure for a while. So the defence was excellent. Still in all, um, this is a, a New Zealand team that's a little bit tired. Uh, you have to give them credit for that, like after a long season. And they, they at the same time, they, they're struggling to find their best combinations. They were outplayed in the back row. They were murdered in the scrum. They couldn't have really an impact in our lineup when it counted most. Full back is a problem. You know, they have a lot of things to figure out and they still couldn't sneak to, probably not a win, but a draw at least, you know. Um, so they're dangerous. They're like they, they're a team. They, they're a team. The one thing though they can't do anymore, and like this is a fact. And I remember going back over the years, they could do this to you anytime they wanted, is they could run over you, and they can't run over it anymore. Like we're we're the same weight as them across the fifteen that started last week. If you average out the two sides, like we're one hundred and fourteen point. I think it's one hundred and four point two five kilos. They're one hundred four point two five kilos. The exact same weight. We're actually half an inch taller than they are. Um, and we're a year more experienced. Now, if you take their tight head, uh, Tuanui Kafafe out of the side, he's 135 kilos. If you put in a normal prop in there, like Keen Healy, he's 115. We're heavier than them. We're taller than them. And here's the other thing. We look like we're in better condition than them. And there's a reason for that as well, is that this Irish team is used to playing ball in hand. New Zealand are ball in play for 70 minutes a game on average. We're ball in play 22 minutes a game on average because they tend to score a lot earlier in their sets. Like Ireland don't think anything about, I think twice, but going through 20, uh, 15, 20, 25 rocks to score. Like New Zealand don't have to ever do that. And you saw on Saturday when they, they saw that they had to maybe go into the double figures in, in their, their, their attacking sets. 
they kick the ball away sometimes. Like especially near the end of the game. I was a I was astounded. Like they weren't in their own twenty two. Ireland had them pinned back in the last five, ten minutes. And they won line outs and just kicked the touch. Like and Ireland were going to win the line out. So they just seemed to didn't have a, a kind of a just let's go here, let's have a crack. It wasn't the last play of the game, they they rolled the dice. So I, I think the part of that was they were so suffocated, they couldn't see a way out. And um I think they're like we're better ball and play than they are. We can keep the ball in favour longer. We do it all the time. Twenty-two minutes, they're seventeen. Hmm. We're as big as them. We're as tall as them. We're as well as conditioned as them. So after that, it's down to skill, you know. And there's nothing in it then. Like we're not. We're like they're very skillful, but we can take that away with a very good defensive set. And they felt that heat on Saturday without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, definitely. And and the Irish forwards, to be fair, had had a good skill level. I know there were a couple of misplaced passes. Rory Best, obviously misplaced one but some of the tip on stuff was really good obviously Tyke Furlong leading the department as well Eddie's point there about the conditioning is so important like it may not be the most glamorous part of it and it goes on behind the scenes so we can't fully appreciate it but Greg mentioned in our interview there Ireland are better than anyone at going through those two minute blocks and that's how they train like Joe Schmidt has put a massive emphasis on those drills getting through phases no one else can really match them in that just to be relentlessly going through the phases one other thing to mention is their discipline and again it's not flashy but it was as important as Jacob Stockdale's try. They only conceded five penalties. The last two times they've played the All Blacks, they've conceded four and four, which is world-class discipline. It's it's not very glamorous, but it is massive in winning test matches. And again, Joe Schmidt has basically made his players live and breathe that every single day, every single training session, uh, talking to a referee who's done a bit of work with them. And, you know, Joe Schmidt is actually making it more demanding in his training sessions than it would be in a test match. Actually giving players uh, penalties where there probably wasn't even a penalty <laughs> in, in reality. So he's put a huge emphasis on that, that conditioning and that discipline, as well as all the cool stuff he does with set pieces, is just vital. But that, that conditioning, Murray, goes on, I think, to be fair, that condition is done in the provinces because the, 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 all they're doing when they come into Irish camp is topping up. You know, the, all the, the, the heavy lifting on their conditioning goes on in the provinces because mm. they're running together for, for literally a week before a game and they, they can't spend a week doing conditioning. So to be fair to the provinces, the, the quality of, of our, our, our conditioning in the provinces is top notch. And then on top of that, we mind them like like show ponies, like guys, because of the GPS systems, we know how far they've run, how far they've jumped, how fast they've run, how many times they've been in contact. And and we because we control over them, like guys are really, their season is plotted through in a phenomenal way and that gives us a bit of an advantage as well like our injury profile is generally pretty good because of all that so that that makes sure that when we're as big and as strong as people we can probably keep going for longer hit them just as hard particularly even harder in the last 20 minutes of a game and th- like that's the stuff that makes a difference it's still a collision sport um and and uh i think for that reason the yeah, con- condition has been a big part of this like we couldn't be a, a 25 phase attacking team without that sort of conditioning and you could do it for the first half and then the wheels will come off in the second. We've been able to do that for 80 minutes against everybody. And and, and you can't put a price on that sort of conditioning. But I believe it's the vast majority is done in the provinces. And then when they go into camp, they, they fine hone it and how they want to use it on the day. A wild card question for you here, guys, completely unrelated to what we're talking about. But we have to give away a book, a copy of Behind the Lines number two. Available in Dubray Books and on our online store as well. But uh, Peter Cummins... Uh, Peter underscore Cummins 6 asks, in a perfect scenario, would you have Robbie Henshaw or Bundy Aki at number 12? Who is the proper number 12, Murray? Uh, this, in my opinion, it's it's Robbie Henshaw. And um, again, that's not to diminish Bundy Aki, but I, I think it would have been fascinating to see if they were all fit, which way Joe Schmidt would have gone. We've talked about this a few times 
uh, for me, the Henshaw ring rose pairing is uh, first choice in my eyes. Yeah, same answer. I, I just again, I, I think Robbie's probably not as aggressive as as Bundy. Everybody knows that Bundy is a, is a real powerhouse, but I think Robbie uh, slightly smarter defensively, stays in his line more more often, and then in attack, I think he's got a good pair of hands. You can use him as a second playmaker if you want to. Um, and I think for that reason, it's got more strengths to their bow. I think it's a more fluid midfield uh, with, with Ring Rose at 13 and, and, and uh, Henshaw at 12. So that'd be my take on it. But look, but like the, the guy who knows the most, the guy who's the most information is Joe Smith because he's coaching him every day. That to me, like coaches, you know, when you when you disagree with a coach on a selection or, or whatever, you've got to remember they have more information than you. So you've got to be pretty confident <laughs> that you're right. And I'd always defer to a coach, but I would suspect had everybody been on deck, that would have been the midfield he'd have gone with this this autumn, I think, if everyone was fitting well. But look, we're speculating. We'll, we'll probably find this out pretty quickly in the Six Nations because he will go full metal jacket in the Six Nations, I think. I don't see him tinkering around, particularly you know, in big games where you could get caught. Um, and this, the, the, Of the four, four of the five games, you could get caught. Italy's probably one you're not going to get caught in. But all the other four, you could get caught. So we'll probably find it out sooner rather than later. Eddie, pleasure as always. Thanks a million for your time. Cheers, guys. I'm from New Zealand, reads the SEMA, and they laugh about Irish rugby. I don't know where you get your hype, but it's all bullshit. Wait for the first game and see how Ireland fare instead of trying to play up a second-rate team. Writing up your little team's greatness at this stage after poorly winning against a poor Italy, now they're world beaters. What a effing joke. Don't get too excited, mate. Chirp down. I hope you'll write in your post-match report how wet behind the ears you were and maybe stick to Gaelic football reporting. New Zealand look uncomfortable out there at the moment and Ireland are certainly on top of this game.
don't think he read the article, to be honest. Some iconic sounds there from a fantastic week and also from the game against the All Blacks. But uh, <laughs> it's back to business now in the Pro 14 this weekend, Murray Kinsella. Um, some interesting little ties. It starts on Friday night, I believe. Leinster at home to the Ospreys. Unfortunately, we don't have Andy Dunn here to continue this saga that is your predictions battle. But Maybe you can make some, no? Yeah, I'll go for it. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I'll enter the race. I'll enter the race. So, yeah, Leinster at home to Ospreys, firstly. Yeah, interesting game, interesting team. Uh, Scott Penny's going to make his debut. We spoke mm. at him uh, a couple of weeks ago. Jimmy O'Brien, Jack Kelly off the bench, potentially making their debuts. Big opportunities for guys like Hugo Keane and, and Kieran Frawley. Uh, there is a bit of experience there with Fardy captaining the team and Michael Bent and, and James Tracy, guys like that. Um, but it does look a, a little bit of a different team to what we're used to at Leinster. Uh, that said, I'd be surprised if they lose, so I'm going to go for a Leinster win there. Yeah, I think Andy would agree with that, to be fair. I'm going to just go the <laughs> same one. Well, we'll change one, but we'll do uh, most of them the same. Uh, Ulster travel to Parky Scarlets on the same night. Yeah, uh, Louis Ludic's back from his long-term hamstring injury. He got injured at the last game of last season. So he starts at 13 and there's a couple of, or four guys from the academy in there. Larry Balakoon, um, James Hume and Eric O'Sullivan all start. So again, a nice bit of youth sprinkling in there. Ian Nagel could make his debut off the bench having gone up there from, from Leinster. Um, it is a tough trip though. The Scarlet's team is obviously missing a lot of Welsh international quality, but I think there's going to be a desperation on their part. Like they're behind Ulster in that table, Conference B, Leinster obviously leading the way. So I think Scarlet's just that hint of desperation will, will get them the win there. Yeah, Andy agrees as well. Uh, Connacht <laughs> going down to South Africa to play the Kings. Yeah, a, a nice trip for Connacht, two weeks away. Um, and it looks like they're having a great time judging off some of the photos coming back. Um, they're a very, a very happy place, obviously, this season. Uh, going pretty well, four wins in eight. And I think despite the Kings being a very different proposition over there and the game is always going to open up, I don't think anyone's yet achieved that kind of close game that the Kings struggle with down there. So... Um, I think Connacht can go blow for blow in that in that style as well, though. So I think they're going to win that game. Oh, jeez. So does Andy. We're going <laughs> <laughs> Are you telling me Andy's picking Zebra to beat Munster? Yeah, he might. He, go, he went for Ireland last week and no one else he's said. A, he's a crazy man. You never know what he's thinking. <laughs> no one um, else said. But that's an interesting game. Also, Conor Murray, obviously, it looks like he's going to make his long-awaited comeback. He's back in full training this week, as is Chris Farrell. So to get the two of them back um, is a real game-changer. Uh, obviously Chris Farrell's coming back from a really serious injury and Murray hasn't played for a long time so it may take them a little bit of uh, match practice to get up to the, the level they're both capable of but those guys fit coming into um, the, the December European matches is huge for Munster uh, they, uh, it would be a massive shock if they don't win that game but that's the kind of most interesting part of it so yeah Munster win with uh, some welcome returns and he fancies a shock He's going with Zebra. <laughs> he's not going to be happy with yeah, that. I know, he's going to be furious when he comes back. Uh, but that is all we've got time for. We will be joined, hopefully, by Andy Dunn next week. And if not, somebody else. <laughs> uh, we might get them to make the predictions instead. Very pleasure as always. Thanks. Cheers, Gavin. Uh, a reminder to you guys at home, um, if you want to get more from the game, join Heineken Rugby Club, whose members enjoy exclusive rewards like match tickets and more. Visit heinekenrugbyclub.com. And remember to enjoy Heineken responsibly and visit drinkaware.ie on how to do so. Thanks a million for your questions as well. This week, congratulations to the book winner whose name is Peter Cummins. Peter underscore Cummins 6. Give him a follow on Instagram, sure. Great question, actually, from Peter. There was a second layer to his question we didn't have time for, so sorry about that, Peter. And sorry we didn't get to more of the questions. We'll try and fit a few more in next week. But until then, have a good weekend and take it easy.